welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. Thanks for carving out the next few minutes of your life to have a bit more of a chat about the topic of happiness and the science of happiness. We're up to week six, and before I get underway, I want to remind you that everything that we're going to talk about today is accessible for you in a couple of places. First of all, all the articles and videos and things that I referenced throughout today, I'm going to put um, on an extended Facebook link um, for this episode, so you can have a look for yourself. But equally too, this is all taken from the uh, University of California Berkeley Science of Happiness course that you can do yourself for free uh, multiple times throughout the year um, by going to edx.org, edx.org. Just search for the Science of Happiness. Um, I believe there is actually an intake underway right now, but again, this is something that happens multiple times a year, so I want it to be open and available for you. But of course, you're listening to this because you haven't had a chance to do that yet. So we're going to talk about one of the most impactful points for me over the course of um, this course. <laughs> it wasn't too elegant, was it? Uh, one of the most impactful was when we looked at the idea of forgiveness and getting a fuller and more holistic idea of what forgiveness is and isn't and how it's beneficial for us. This That was something that particularly the idea of self-forgiveness I found quite impactful. But we're going to talk about something else too that I would say I would put in that top tier of most impactful for me and that is the idea of self-compassion. That's covered in the wider topic of the mental habits of happiness that we're going to be looking at throughout this week. That's kind of the theme. And um, Rick Hansen wrote an article on how to trick your brain for happiness and just looking at this, this idea again of saying, well, how... How much influence can we have over our happiness, our well-being? And when we look at the different areas of the brain that are affected by our mental habits, uh, the question that he asks, which I think is quite a neat way of putting it, is saying, can we change our minds by changing our brains by changing our minds? So in other words, what can we do to have an impact on it? And Dacher Keltner picks up uh, a deeper level of thought on this when he discusses the ideas behind training the mind for happiness and saying... Things like a happy mind creating positive patterns of thought and negative patterns that are implicated in conditions like depression and anxiety. So sometimes it's helpful to understand when we're talking about negative patterns or even toxic patterns as has been described. What are we talking about there? So there's four that we want to look at. The first of these is perfectionism. And this is something that I wouldn't say I'm a air quotes, typical perfectionist, but I've certainly become aware of times in my life where I've held myself to a perfect standard. And really that is what perfectionism is about, right? Striving for perfection. And it's toxic because we almost always find ourselves lacking. Um, being praised in childhood for intrinsic traits like intelligence rather than changeable traits like effort can also promote perfectionism. In fact, there's a fascinating book by Carol Dweck, Dr. Carol Dweck, called Mindset. And I would encourage anybody to take a look at that, particularly if you do work with young people. But I found it as impactful for me at the stage of life that I am in now, regardless of that. Because it looks at how when we are praised for these sorts of things, we, be, we end up with an entrenched view of who we are. And having a fixed view, which is really what her book Mindset talks about, Having a fixed view of who we are says that there are certain traits that we have and that is just the way that it is. And that could express itself in your life in a bunch of different ways. 
certain things that you don't believe you're good at or that you could never do because oh, I just, you know, I just can't do it. It's just not, not my kind of thing. The alternative to that is a growth mindset. And that basically just says that you can improve at anything if you put the time and the effort into it. And there are a range of studies that she cites throughout the book to, to back this idea up. The most fascinating thing for me is that your experience of life is very much shaped by just which side of the fence you fall on on that one there. If you believe that life is very much about fixed traits and things that you can't do anything about and just finding those things that you're good at and that's just the way it is, you will have an experience of life that proves that to you. But the amazing thing about our minds is that they are a creative force. And so if you do have this sense that in fact, just through time and effort, I can improve. I may not ever be an Olympic athlete, but I know if I exercise more, I can become fitter and stronger. Well, equally for our minds, we can become clearer and more objective thinkers, or even in a creative sense as well, down to basic artistic things like drawing and painting. That actually blew my mind a little bit because I realized I had some fixed thinking there that said, well, either you can draw or you can't. There's studies that are shown in that book to prove the fact that it, you, you can improve in those things as well when you know what to look for. So that's a long-winded way of saying that perfectionism is often grounded in trying to have the best possible view of ourselves, like an, an, an impossible view that says, yes, I'm, I'm perfect at this, as opposed to seeing life about growth and challenge and putting in effort to get the best out of it that you can. I hope that came across okay. I felt like I lost my flow a bit there a little bit. Anyway, the second part that's identified as a uh, toxic thought pattern is social comparison. So comparing ourselves to those who are better off than us um, and it leads to lower self-perception um, and also too the thought of comparing ourselves to those who are worse off than us makes us look down at them. And a lot's been talked about with the advent of social media and how it's made comparison such an easy thing to do now. I'm a little on the fence on this one here because I think there's a bit of nuance to how to approach this. We're social beings. And so comparison seems to be intrinsic. What I mean by that is if you say to somebody, don't compare yourself to other people, I don't think you're really going to be able to do that. You know what I mean? I don't think you're going to be able to say, therefore, never compare yourselves to others. What this speaks to for me is a deeper question of worth and how do we build that sense of worth within people that isn't just grounded in performance. So I'll leave that thought with you. But that's kind of where I've got to with it so far. The third thing, and this is also big in Western culture, is the idea of materialism. That research has shown that buying experiences actually gives us much more happiness than buying things, but equally too, buying things does not produce lasting happiness. But that's not, of course, the, the message we get, right? If you're not feeling good, go out and buy something. It was funny, I was listening to the radio yesterday, and there's this um, promotion they had on a, the station I was listening to, and they said this thing about, you know, retail therapy. And look, man, I get it. Like, you know, shopping's fun. Buying stuff is fun. I get it. Okay. Just, you know, but it just struck me in that moment again, how much we go, oh, you know, but just to be able to go out and buy stuff, what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing to do. And look, yeah, absolutely. There is a, there is a measure of happiness that you can get out of that. But in terms of what's lasting, 
doing things for other people or buying experiences is far more valuable. But we lose, we lose sight of that. So when we can't buy new stuff, we get bummed out, right? The fourth point that was identified as a toxic pattern of thought is maximizing rather than satisficing. And again, I find this an interesting challenge to the dominant ideology because it talks about maximizers trying to make optimal choices. And the thing behind it that can make it toxic is that it can be a form of perfectionism. What is the best possible outcome? What, what's going to be the best possible thing? For example, having had discussions with those at different stages of their lives, I was going to say young people, but I've, I've realized that it actually happens throughout, you know, throughout life. This idea of what kind of job should I do? Where, where should I work? And what's the right job? And that little sting in the tail is an expression of both perfectionism and maximizing to me because it says, you know, it's possible to choose the perfect job. And if it doesn't work out, then we feel the pressure of going, oh my gosh, did I choose the wrong thing? What have I done? Um, Satisficers, on the other hand, pick the first available choice that fits their criteria. And what studies have shown is that maximizers tend to feel more regret over decisions. They're less optimistic, more depressed, and less satisfied with their life and with any successes that they achieve. So think about when you've had choices to make, thinking about buying a car or, I don't know, whatever. What leads to a greater experience of life is not trying to find the optimal choice, because again, what's the optimal choice? What's the perfect thing? As soon as you buy you know, a new phone, the next model comes out, that kind of stuff, right? As opposed to saying, well, what do I need? What meets that criteria, I'll take that, I'll do that, I'll go there, that sort of thing. Food for thought anyway, right? So this all distills down to a final thought on this point that just says that cultivating an optimistic pattern of thinking where we believe that the future will be socially desirable and good and pleasurable is good for our health and for our happiness. So optimistic people have higher subjective well-being now, subjective well-being, again, is like the scientific catch-all for happiness. They also experience better positive emotions and vagal tone. And vagal tone refers to the vagus nerve cluster, which is something we talked about a little earlier on, but it's very closely linked with this idea of subjective well-being. It's like a biological um, biological superhighway, I don't know, biological traffic light. It's something that's engaged when we are doing things that are positive. Um, in fact, in one study, optimistic young men were found to be healthier 35 years later. And this is true so long as we don't go into the extremes of wishful thinking or recklessness. And this is the other side of this kind of stuff that I think nuance needs to come in. When we're talking about happiness as well, if I was to segue for a moment, and I was watching um, a discussion on this just recently, of how our pursuit of happiness as an end unto itself is one of the things that makes us miserable. I'll say that again without my phone um, chiming in. Our pursuit of happiness as an end unto itself is one of the things that makes us unhappy. Um, and in other words, what I have taken from so much of this course material has been that happiness is a natural state that flows from certain beliefs, behaviors, and things like that that are in line with what's really important. 
earlier on we've talked about things like social connection and generosity and forgiveness and those sorts of things and they lead to happiness but of course the goal is not happiness in those moments the goal is social connection the goal is gratitude the goal is generosity they just bring with them happiness after that fact right and so when we're looking at things like optimism pessimists tend to challenge that as saying well it's you know head in the clouds kind of stuff what i think is interesting is that both optimists and pessimists live on the same planet right like they both have access to the same world they see the same things and yet an optimist ultimately will just live longer than a pessimist they both live on the same planet and i think that kind of irritates have you ever met like you know when you're having a down day and you run into somebody who's really up and bouncy and bubbly in that moment and you just they're really irritating i wonder if that's just what that is <laughs> but like on a lifelong kind of scale because we've all had moments right but just that if you are in a state of seeing the good looking for the good you will see it and you will find it and you'll experience it and if you are a pessimist well you're looking for the opposite and you'll see it and you will find it and in some ways you get a bit of a kick out of it because it confirms the things you already think and that's another interesting thing to know about human beings we really love proving to ourselves that we're right either way the optimist and the pessimist live on the same planet but they have a different experience of life and what this shows me is that yes you can live your life either way but the optimist has a better experience of it as they go all right so exploring this idea of maximizing by the way uh, christine carter um looked into this and acknowledges first of all that this idea of satisficing might seem like settling you know uh, it might seem to generate suboptimal outcomes as the, the term that she uses the interesting thing that she observed is that it frees up our decision making for more important choices and this is a whole other thing that people look at in terms of the amount of decision making power that you have in any given day is a is a finite resource and somebody like mark zuckerberg i don't know if you've heard this but he's almost always seen in like a gray t-shirt apparently he just has like scores of gray t-shirts same thing he wears pretty much the same thing to work every single day and his reasoning behind it was simply that it's just something he doesn't have to think about what am i going to wear just decision made for him so that's some of the expression of that idea so the next step that carter identifies is to focus on the positives of our choice which is what our brains are wired to do so studies by daniel gilbert who i think we've actually referenced before but we're going to look at some more of his work in a little while have shown that we like our choices even more after we've made them it's actually something they call the endowment effect and somebody by the name of daniel kahneman who i've also referenced before um, identified this as well um, we like our choices even more after we've made them but only if we perceive them as set or unchangeable so in one cases they did a study with participants ranking paintings and they got to take home their third or their fourth choice 15 days later the third had gone up in their estimation and the fourth had gone down uh, in another study participants who got to pick between two photographs were happier if they didn't have a few days to change their mind isn't that interesting if they didn't have a few days to change their mind there's actually a variation on that that i've also heard of that looks at um i think it was students choosing posters 
and they could choose anyone they wanted. One group were just able to choose whatever the one they wanted and another group had to give a reason. And interestingly, the group who didn't have to give a reason liked their painting or their poster a lot more than those who had to give a reason for it. So very interesting stuff either way. Now, there are some misconceptions about training the mind. Emiliana Simon, Simon Thomas, who is one of the, the senior lecturers on this course, jumps in again at this point just to kind of clear up some of these thinking, the thinking around this, that there might be some skepticism about mind training techniques because people might believe they don't work or the outcome seems undesirable. And in fact, what she just wants to jump in at this point to identify is that mindfulness and other techniques that are discussed help put us better in touch with reality so we can see things clearly and act from there. And thanks to things like neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change, science has shown that we are able to change. So just that thought, the fact that there is scientific evidence behind your ability to change is actually very freeing. But I do know equally, and this is more of a psychology point of view, that, that can also be a bit jarring because it's a horrible thing to have been in a difficult situation in a negative environment for a long period of time because you can't do anything about it only to realize that actually you could have done something about it i think that's what we tend to resist i think that's our our psychological immune system working a little bit out of balance to try and protect our sense of self and so sometimes to protect that sense of self the best thing that you do is you tell yourself well yeah but there was there's nothing i can do about it now on the other side of this what i would say is that it's the judgment that we make on ourselves that makes that difficult. Because if I do admit that I could have done something, what's the next thought, right? What's the next thought? Oh man, I'm, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I did that. I'm so dot, 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 right? You'll fill in your own blanks on that kind of thing. So that is where this next part comes in and why I found it particularly impactful. So if the idea of self-compassion is new to you, because it was new to me, I became aware that there were a lot of assumptions that I had about how to get the best out of myself and how to get the best out of others that made the idea of self-compassion seem... Hmm. I was not as open to it. Maybe that's the better way. I was skeptical. It seemed like it was just a way of mollycoddling people. I say that just to acknowledge it and to say that if that's what you're thinking as well, if that's what you're feeling, um, all I would ask then is for the next little while as I talk through some of these points, just be open and aware and um, who knows, this may well be as impactful for you as it was for me. So the idea of self-compassion as a field of study has been pioneered by Kristen Neff. And she talks about it in terms of changing our inner dialogue from critical to supportive um, and also understanding and caring. So the point that I brought up here straight away is that self-compassion does go against a lot of countervailing trends in our history, our culture, and even in religion. So uh, ancient philosophies of kind of virtue-based happiness, um, air quotes again, and religious conceptions of things like martyrdom and sin often communicate this idea of painful effort. Even ideas like natural selection and behaviorism and uh, competition lead us to think that only the best survive, only the strong survive, that sort of thing. And the weak or the wrong should just be punished or it's what they deserve or it's because they were lazy or whatever. It also ties into another 
um, concept called the just world fallacy that says that if you're doing well, it's because you deserve it. And if you're doing poorly, then equally pick yourself up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, there's just stuff that you're doing wrong, that kind of thing. So even in psychology, you've got people like Freud who um, on the one side were telling us that we're selfish and destructive. And then the self-esteem movement on the other side, telling us to see ourselves in, as better than average. I found that particularly humorous when they expanded on it a little bit further because by default, 50% of people are worse than average at all times, right? So if we're all better than average, it's it's not even possible, right? I mean, it's one thing to strive for, for, for excellence and that kind of thing. I, I get that, but I'm just trying to help illustrate this idea here that by constantly creating this perpetual striving engine, that is telling us to see ourselves as the best, it creates a very unhealthy way of viewing ourselves. And we're going to expand that out a little bit here. So in short, having a kind and accepting view of yourself, flaws and all, just doesn't seem to fit in with what most of our culture tells us about how to get the best from ourselves. So coming back to Kristen Neff's thoughts around self-compassion, she identified there being three components. And so the first one is self kindness and it's the desire to to comfort and to soothe ourselves and alleviate our suffering the second part is common humanity it's the ability to see our problems as something that every human experiences man that one stands out to me a lot as well because of the number of occasions where i had this occasion what was it about a week or so ago you know when you just send the email an email to the wrong person just you know something you sent came out the wrong way and um what was remarkable to me is that a friend of mine had experienced the same thing only a few days before and when they did it and i was listening to them saying hey look yeah okay you made a mistake but but these things happen right but when i did it it was a different different kettle of fish horse of a different color insert your metaphor here and this idea of common humanity i found particularly powerful and then the third part was to connect with what we discussed earlier as well, this idea of mindfulness. And that's really just a non-judgmental awareness of how we're feeling at the moment. It's the ability to notice how we're feeling and to be able to sit with our suffering. Again, we've talked about wanting to be happy in our culture, and that is a, a noble and worthy goal in and of itself. But when happiness is your ultimate good, it becomes very difficult to accept suffering or acknowledge what could be causing it or be prepared to work through it we want to push it out of our heads push it aside push it down just anywhere other than staying where it is right now yet it's not good for us so with those three points in mind there are some objections that tend to come up it might seem a bit misguided and dr neff talks about how we've got to address this and say well should we really just do whatever we want and then pardon ourselves you know never holding ourselves to high standards so what we actually discover though from the science behind self-compassion is that self-compassionate people are actually able to take more responsibility and admit their faults self-compassion includes the desire for long-term well-being that's one of the things that gets communicated in the the research underneath this so self-compassionate people won't spend all their lives relaxing because it takes too much effort to do anything and also, too, they won't wallow in self-pity because mindfulness gives them some distance from their feelings and common humanity gives them some perspective. 
And in other words, I think on that first point, it's particularly powerful, the ability to admit their faults. You see, if, if your sense of who you are, your self-esteem is about how great you are, your thinking has to reinforce that. So anything that challenges your sense of how great you are is very difficult to look at, very difficult to acknowledge. But if your fundamental view of yourself is grounded in self-compassion, that no matter what happens, I'm going to be kind and supportive to myself as I would be to somebody else, that's going to change the narrative. That's going to change our ability to actually look at our faults. Isn't that remarkable? So moving into more thinking about this, um, one of the most challenging objections to self-compassion is the idea that we need some kind of admonishing voice in our heads to spur us towards success. So this idea is balanced by acknowledging that yes, we do need a voice in our head spurring us forward, but just not the self-critical voice that we're all really used to hearing. Self-criticism can scare us into believing that failure is unacceptable. And self-critical people tend to be more depressed, less confident, and they're afraid of failure. Or on the other side, they can end up being very egotistical as well. So in contrast, a self-compassionate voice would move us with a desire for health and well-being. And we'd be more likely to listen to it as well. I mean, again, think about it. Whenever somebody wants to give you advice, you can tell when somebody's pushing their own agenda versus coming with a genuine concern about your health and well-being. How much more likely are you to listen to that other person or take on board what they have to say? That might not be enough, though, to convince you of the merits of self-compassion versus self-esteem. So there was more study that was done by uh, Kristen Neff into this. And she identifies, first of all, that self-esteem and self-compassion might seem like opposites, but they actually go hand in hand. Self-compassionate people tend to have higher self-esteem and both correlate with less anxiety and depression and more happiness, more optimism and more positive emotion. Um, but the differences between the two are quite strong. So as Neff explains it, and again, I think this is important to understand whenever we're looking at discussions on these sorts of things, that all of our language goes through our own little filters. So we need to kind of calibrate on the same page. So when she looks at the pursuit of self-esteem, she looks at the desire to be special or to be above average. And since half of us aren't, so it was that idea we were talking about before, we either get inflated egos or we look down on other people uh, when we achieve it, right? We might even refuse to see our weaknesses and we'll be at risk of things like narcissism and self-absorption or self-righteous anger or prejudice or discrimination. Now, self-compassion, on the other hand, is more about being accepting of ourselves despite our flaws. And when we do that, we actually feel less fearful, we're less negative and we're less isolated because making mistakes is okay because everybody does it. And so, for example, self-compassionate people are less likely to feel humiliated and incompetent when imagining a big mistake. That was a study that they'd done on people. And also less anxious when admitting a weakness in a job interview because everybody has weaknesses, right? Um, you know, we use that idea of blind spots. That just came to me when I was looking through this right now. We talk about people having blind spots. And I think the reason we have a blind spot is not because we can't see, but because we won't. And that is a result of having a self-esteem based view of yourself. Why would you look at something that will show you your flaws? Or when you do, you have to suck it up and it's really difficult, right? Well, what if discovering something negative about yourself or a weakness about yourself didn't mean that you had to unravel 
that's what self-compassion is from my perspective. So somewhat surprisingly as well, when we look at this idea of self-compassion and self-esteem, self-compassionate people actually take more responsibility for their actions. So in one study, some self-compassionate people who got neutral feedback about their speaking skills, they got them to do public speaking because they knew that that's a thing that a lot of people freak out about. Um, when they got neutral feedback, they were more likely attributed to their personality instead of, say, a mean observer than people with high self-esteem. So mistakes and criticism don't threaten them as much as they do for people who have to perform well all the time. And finally, the self-worth of self-compassionate people varies less over time. So they engage less in social comparison. This is those with self-compassionate views of themselves. And they've got less of a compulsion to be right or to get petty revenge. So already, I think self-compassion starting to sound like a pretty good idea. Following on from this, Emiliana Simon, Simon Thomas looks into some of the benefits that have been linked to self-compassion. Um, now, a lot of the stuff is correlative kind of stuff, not necessarily proving a cause. But just so you're aware, um, self-compassion is associated with less anxiety, less depression, less rumination, perfectionism, and fear of failure. And self-compassionate people have also been proven to cope better with stress, and they're more willing to acknowledge negative emotions. Um, there is a lot more to this as well, and I'll, I'll link through the article for you a little bit later on. But I think some of this is intuitive for me as well, right? If you have a, a kinder and gentler view of yourself or you have less, less stress going through your body as you would need to maintain a view of you being the best all the time, it's going to produce a health benefit for you. So on to the final part of um, this week's Habits of Happiness. And we want to take a look at the idea of flow. And flow was an idea that was identified by uh, actually a book by Mahali um, Chiksamahai. And I will put the link to his name uh, again in the um, description for this on the Facebook page because I'm not going to try and spell that over the interwebs. Um, I mean, over the microphone. So flow is an idea that's given to a rewarding state of mind that comes when we're intensely engaged in an activity. So it's one of those things where you can lose track of time, you know, forget about other people and the environment that we're in. And when we're in flow, we tend to be more creative and productive. And afterwards, we feel exhilarated and satisfied. So for flow to occur, we're looking for an ideal match between the goal and our skills. And they need to kind of line up with the challenge in front of us. We have a clear goal and our skills need to match the challenge in front of us. That's a better way to say that. Um, and we also need an environment where we can fully concentrate and immediate feedback when we're moving in the right direction. Those are the things we're looking for. So Daniel Goleman looks into this a little bit further and just identifies three states um, depending on the skills we have and the challenge we're confronted with. So um, we could be in boredom, in flow, or in frazzle. So in flow, we have moderate stress. So stress isn't always a bad thing. We need a moderate amount that challenges us, challenges good for us. In boredom, we've got low stress where we've got we try to focus, but we can't. And in frazzle, we've got too much stress and we are performing poorly because we're distracted by negative emotions. Uh, Jill Sutty looks at the applications of this into schools as well and how we help students find flow. Uh, and in other words, have you ever been bored at school? Is that a good thing? This idea of boredom as well. I think it's a fascinating discussion to have with people. How much boredom should you have in your life? 
how much boredom is just the way life is. We start off our social careers, I would say, because it's before we have work, but it's when we first start to acknowledge that, hey, there are certain expectations, requirements placed on me for how I need to live my life. And we're put in an environment where almost 50% of students are bored every day at school. That comes from a study that was released in 2009. So on top of that, being motivated by things like just our grades, put students at risk of cheating and depression and drug abuse. Um, the internal motivation of flow, on the other hand, has extraordinary benefits. And when we're able to identify this state of flow, what it takes for each student, um, it makes them more likely to sign up for other courses, develop a hunger for learning. Um, and of course, it is correlated with good grades as well. And in other words, for all this talk, if you think about would you be more motivated to do something that you were interested in that challenged you along the lines of the skills that you had and helped you to improve, would you want to do that thing? Obviously, right? So I wonder what it would take to change that in the schooling environment. Um, Keith Sawyer starts to look about uh, look at the idea of um, group flow as well, looking back at uh, a legendary comedian by the name of Mel Brooks and a group of com uh, comedic writers uh, that he worked with. But the last thing I wanted to leave you with today is looking at goals and how goals can foster happiness. And what I loved about this study is it helped to clarify some thinking that I'd had about good goals and bad goals, right? Or more specifically, the goals that lead to a more rewarding and meaningful kind of life. Because goals give us a sense of hope and meaning and purpose. When somebody is disempowered, has a feeling like they've got no ability to influence the world around them, they rapidly go downhill in terms of their mental and emotional state, right? So we, we need goals. We need purpose. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's an amazing exposition on this idea and his observations, even from within uh, Nazi death camps, where he was in fact interred in the Second World War. But the thing is, not all of our goals make us happy, right? So this final thought has uncovered that we are happier when we pursue intrinsic goals. And these are things that are inherently valuable. And in other words, they involve basic psychological needs, things around autonomy or competence or connection to other people. Those three things. In contrast, extrinsic goals, so it could be fame or, or wealth or even a certain, you know, appearance goal or something like that, um, are usually what they call instrumental. So they're pursued in order to get something else, maybe like approval. So I hope that's a clear distinction for you, that an extrinsic goal is not an end unto itself. I'm doing this to get something else. I had a discussion with a friend where I talked about it in my own language. I talked about secondhand goals. Um, I'll give you an example, actually, that, that um, I lined this up with. If you follow tennis at all, you may have heard of a guy called Andre Agassi. Very successful. I think he won eight Grand Slam uh, titles during his career. But it came out after he had retired that he said he hated tennis. Couldn't stand the game. And yet he became very, very good at it. But this being very good at it gave him no joy, gave him no pleasure. So why did he do it? As is often the case in some of these super high performing lives, we discover that his parents, his father was particularly demanding and drove him 
to succeed in this kind of area. Which on the one hand shows us that you can get good at anything, even in this case if you don't like it. So your ability to have skills in a certain area needn't force you down an area that you don't enjoy because it just says you can develop skills in any area, right? I think we don't often have that kind of abundant mindset. I think we find, oh, I've got skills in this area and oh, well, I guess if that's what I'm good at, that's where I have to go. Well, you know what? If you've got a more of a growth mindset about yourself, what it says is that even if you have other areas that you are interested in more, but you don't have the skills yet, you can get them. You can develop them. But to come back to the Andre Agassi example, whatever he was in tennis for, it was not for tennis's own sake. It was not for the enjoyment of the game. And when I see somebody like Roger Federer, I see somebody who does play for that reason. He enjoys tennis. He, he plays tennis because he likes tennis and he's good at tennis and it's fun and he just gets into a state of flow. And you see the difference just in his general countenance. If you see the kind of person that he is, it comes across. Now again, I'm prepared to be labeled a bit idealistic on that front. I obviously don't know either man very well. But looking at these two things, what I see is the difference between pursuing a goal for its own sake because it's naturally enjoyable, intrinsically motivating for you versus I'm trying to get something else. I'm trying to prove something to somebody else, prove something to myself. That's the difference. So take a look at your own goals. Maybe that can be your homework, right? I don't think I've ever given you homework before. Trust me, I give myself homework all the time. But just to take a look at what your goals are and to say, you know, are these things that are linked around autonomy, competence, or connection to other people? Or are they just something that I'm trying to get in order to get something else? Once I have this, then I'll also have this other thing. Final thought anyway. I hope you enjoyed this week on the week of ha uh, the, uh, the signs of happiness. And I would always love to hear your thoughts on this too. You can send them through to me at the Andrew Curtis show at gmail.com. And of course, um, as I mentioned, the articles and um, videos and things like that that are referenced throughout this week, um, I will put on an extended Facebook link um, when I post this episode, which you'll find at um, facebook.com slash the Andrew Curtis show. Thanks for listening. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years, I'm rocking my pants, putting suckers in fear.